Good morning, church. Our reading today is from Exodus 2, verses 1 to 25. I'll give you a moment to get there with me. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he, cr- he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Rural asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Can I ask you, do you think that God knows what is going on in your life? Do you think that God knows your struggles and those hidden secret things, perhaps those things that you hope nobody else finds out about, those burdens that you carry, uh, those fears that you harbor, those hurts that don't seem to get healed? Do you think God knows? 
and you think God cares. In 1934, John and Betty Stamm were American missionaries to China, and they had a, a baby girl who was three months old. Her name was Helen. They were working in the east of China, and they received a warning one day that the Red Army was coming for them. Imminently, any minute now, they're going to bash down the door. Betty fed her daughter. She was still nursing. They hid her inside a sleeping bag. They put $10 in her coat and some nappies and a note. John and Betty were marched down the streets of the town to meet their death. John was ordered to kneel and was beheaded in front of his wife, who moments later was killed. The baby girl was discovered two days later by a pastor in God's providence, a Christian, who found a wet nurse for the child and eventually tracked down her relatives in the United States. She was delivered safely back to her extended family in America. When she grew up, she trained for the ministry and went as a missionary straight back to the same area that her parents were martyred. Isn't that a remarkable story? Can you imagine being the parents of that little girl? Wondering if she will be discovered. Wondering if God knows. Does God care? Does God see what is going on? Well, let's come to Exodus chapter 2 this morning, where if you were here with us last week, we saw that Israel is in captivity. At first glance, it looks as though God has abandoned them that he's forgotten about them. We saw last time actually that God is involved, working behind the scenes. The hidden hand of God always at work to bring about his purposes, even in the darkest moment. And we learned for ourselves last week that we can be certain that God is alive and well and able to achieve what he has set out to do regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the obstacles. Now today the camera pans from having the whole nation of Israel in view down to the beginning of the life of one man called Moses. It's interesting to note the structure of the book of Exodus. It's 40 chapters. In chapter 1, it spans several centuries. Chapter 2 covers about 80 years. And chapters 3 to 40 is all about one year in the life of the nation of Israel. By the end of our chapter today, chapter 2 and verse 23... The whole nation is in view again. So if you like, last week the whole nation in view, this week Moses and his family in view, but by the end of the chapter the whole nation in view again. And I want you to see, first of all, that deliverance begins. There are many stories of deliverance in the Bible. Do you remember what the first story of deliverance in the Bible is? Anyone? Not a rhetorical question. Noah. Noah and the ark. All the stories uh, of deliverance in the Bible are signposts, of course, to the great story of deliverance, which is the story of Jesus on the cross, delivering us from the wrath of God. But they're not only signposts, the stories of deliverance, they are also patterns. That is, there are certain characteristics in the deliverance stories 
that are always the same. For example, God always uses a human agent to action deliverance. The human is often unexpected, unimpressive. Deliverance is almost always accompanied by supernatural signs and wonders in the deliverance stories in the Bible. The same act of deliverance almost always is also an act of judgment. The deliverance stories do two things. They save some and judge others. That's true for Noah and the ark. Eight were saved, the world was judged, and it is true for Jesus on the cross. The story of the Exodus, the story of Moses, is similar. It's a story of deliverance with a human agent through whom the deliverance comes. It's accompanied by signs and wonders. And while it is rescue for Israel, it is judgment for Egypt. That's the pattern of deliverance in the Bible. And this story unfolds for us in three scenes. First, in verses 1 to 10, we've got Moses, the infant. Now, let's remember that Hebrew male infants were an endangered species in Egypt, weren't they? Because Pharaoh had commanded their murder. It was a dangerous time to be a newborn Hebrew male. Verse 2 says... Um, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, I mean, that is very typical of a new mother, isn't it? I mean, we all know that newborns are actually... Oh, I better not say that. The word in the Hebrew is he was a beautiful child. He was a good child. It's actually the word good in the sense of gorgeous. And... Uh, It's exactly what you expect from a new mom. It's interesting the word good that is used there because it's the word that is repeated several times in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. And God saw that it was good, gorgeous, beautiful, fine. That's the word. And we meant to think of that. The author means for us to hear the echo of Genesis with its repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good. Could this be a new beginning, a new genesis that is about to take place? And his mother hides him for three months. Eventually his crying gets too loud, and she realizes that she needs to resort to more drastic measures to ensure his survival. And so she puts him in a basket and launches him onto the Nile. In fact, the word for basket in verse 3 is the word ark. She puts him in an ark. And did you notice, by the way, that the same materials are used that Noah used for his ark? Tar and pitch, the NIV says, or bitumen, the ESV says. Something big is happening. Something cosmic is happening. It's linked to creation, good, It's linked to the flood ark. Those are the two biggest things that have happened in the world so far by the time we get to Exodus chapter 2. Whatever else Exodus is about, it's not less important than the creation and the flood. It fits into that category of mega events that God is involved with. And there are some delicious ironies in the story, aren't there? The same Nile that is used to destroy the infant male Hebrews, 
instead of drowning Moses, delivers him safely. The one that will one day rescue the Hebrews and destroy Egypt. The Nile is not allowed to be an instrument of destruction only, and in Moses' case, it's an instrument of rescue, of delivery. The other irony is the rescuer is Pharaoh's own child, his own daughter, even though she knew, according to verse 6, that he was a Hebrew, and she knew her father's decree about Hebrew infant boys. But the very king's daughter is going to save the one through whom her own father will be destroyed. It's delicious. <laughs> but there's another irony here as well. The one who will rescue Israel is first in need of rescue from Egypt himself. Can you see the hand of God? Are you beginning to be convinced that this is orchestrated by God? Isn't it amazing that Moses' own mother gets paid to be his wet nurse in verse 9 in what must be the first case of a child grant? Amazing. Second scene is Moses the fugitive in verses 11 to 15. He grows up and one day he comes across a scene that must have happened every day in Egypt, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Look at verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, notice to where his own people were, and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand in a shallow grave. He's, he sees the situation. His instinct is to deliver his own people the Hebrew, that's being beaten. He does it by committing murder that is seen, even though he thought it wasn't seen. He looked this way and that. But his cover is blown because two of his own countrymen, his own compatriots, two Hebrews, call him out on it in verse 15, and Moses' reputation is sullied and his life is now in danger a second time. Whatever else you say about Moses, you've got to love his heart, haven't you? He's got a social conscience. He's anti-slavery. He abhors the evil of what he sees happening to his own countrymen. But God's plan of deliverance isn't going very well. He's found out, and he's got to flee because his own people betray him. Moses' deliverance of Israel is a failure. He's got all the right convictions and the right heart and the right motives, the right concerns, but he fails. Unless God acts, they will not be rescued. Third scene, Moses, the family man, in verses 16 to 22. I love these verses. You can imagine what Hollywood would do with these verses. Imagine a shirtless, rippling, shiny Egyptian prince stripped down to the waist, drawing water for some babes in the desert. They're swooning. And their father is so excited that he gives him one of his daughters in marriage. Husbands were scarce, standards were low. <laughs> Moses eventually settles east of Egypt in Midian with this family. He marries in verse 22, becomes a dad. And he lives to the age of 80 in the scene 
in the desert. He starts to think about retirement, the cruise, the golf, the gins and tonic on the porch. But God has other plans for him. And we'll see that next week. He's about to enter the most significant stage of his life at the age of 80 as God puts him to work. Now, how does this part, Moses the family man, how does it fit in? What does it have to do with the story of deliverance? It seems a bit random. But I want you to notice that in these verses, there are four verbs that come, three verbs that come, that are easy to miss. In verse 11, there's the verb, he saw. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. In verse 12, he struck. That is, he killed uh, the Egyptian slave driver. And both in verse 17 and in verse 19, the ESV says he saved. The NIV says he came to their rescue, the girls. He saw, he struck, he saved. These are very important verbs in the book of Exodus. They come quite frequently throughout the book of Exodus. In chapter 2 and verse 25, look at the very last verse of our chapter. What a beautiful verse this is. The NIV say, says, God, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The ESV says, God saw and God knew. Isn't that lovely? God saw and God knew. In chapter 4 and verse 23, we are told that God will strike. Remember, Moses saw, Moses struck. God saw, God will strike. And at the end of the Exodus, chapter 14 and verse 30, look at these verses. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' his servant. Can you see that what happens with Moses in microcosm is really a preview to what is going to happen with God and the nation. God sees, God acts, he strikes, and God redeems, God saves. It's a glimpse in miniature of what God is going to do. See, strike, save. See, strike, save. At the very point of the story that it looks like it's all going wrong, God sees and God knows. And if God doesn't act, there is no hope. So the second and shorter heading this morning is the God of deliverance. Verses 23 to 25, the camera takes us away from Moses and his family in Midian and back to Israel in Egypt. Still in captivity, still undelivered, still miserable, but there is a future glimpse of hope. Let's look at these verses. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. There's the first glimpse of hope. One king dies and another king takes notice. It's the contrast of two kings. 
The old king of of Egypt, whose reign first marked the beginning of Israel's trouble in chapter 1 and verse 8, as we saw last week, he has died. It's now safe for Moses to return because the Pharaoh who wanted to kill him, verse 15, is now dead. Verse 23 says, during that long period, which is a reference both to the reign of the Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses, but also an indicator that Moses has been for many years in Midian. And so one king is dead, but the king of the universe, the king of kings, the king who outlives and outlasts all human kings is on his throne and he takes note of their misery. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, verse 23, and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abram and Isaac and with Jacob. And so God saw, and God knew. God is not the Sphinx. God is not a little man-made God made of stone or wood or metal. I've told the story before, but a few years ago I was, had the opportunity to go to Singapore and there's a huge temple that all the tourists go to and I wasn't spared. I went to this temple and it's an open-air temple with all of these statues that are worshipped on a daily basis, all with fruit and vegetables in front of them. And I was struck by two things. Number one, how ugly they were. They were terrifying. If I was a child in that temple, I would never want to go back. It was so terrifying. And number two, that the workers in the temple were using brooms to clean the statues because even pigeons know what to do to idols. They had to clean off the pigeon mess. That's how useful an idol is. God is not like that. He's not the Sphinx or any of the man-made gods that the Egyptians worshipped. He is the living God. He has eyes. He can see. He has ears and can hear the prayers of the Israelites which came up to him. He heard them. He saw them. He knew them. For he is the true and the living God who knows precisely what is going on in every detail of your life, in every corner of your heart, behind every closed door, every anxiety, every worry, every sin, everything. He has an infinite mind, he remembers and he knows. Two lessons for us this morning to take away from this story. Number one, can I remind you that God hears our prayers? God hears the prayers of his people. We're told they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went to God. God heard their groaning. You know, sometimes you can't pray, you can just groan. Have you noticed that? God hears. God understands the groan. It's written in such a way that we will understand it. It's not that God forgot his promises and needed to be reminded. 
But it is the first time that we hear Israel praying. It's the first time that Israel have groaned to God about their situation. The political change of kings made no, brought no relief to Israel. And so here is the first time that they turn their hope to the true and the living God, the God of their forefathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. They pray, and we are told in verse 24 what they couldn't have known and what we often don't know, and that is that God heard. Don't you often feel like your prayers bounce off the ceiling? That you pray for something year in and year out, and there seems to be no change. We feel like that, don't we? I reckon the Israelites felt like that. But here we are given the perspective of heaven. God heard. God took note. And so God hears our prayers. Prayer is the starting point for deliverance. One uh, author, Christian author, puts it like this. Uh, this is presented so that we will see that our prayers are so effective and so delightful in the ears of God that he condescends to accommodate his eternal, sovereign, providential working so that we can understand as though to say, oh, thank you for reminding me. It's not that he forgot. But he wants us to ask. It's not for his sake. It's for our sake. For prayer is the most basic form of trust as you speak to somebody bigger than you who can do something about the situation that you can't do anything about. And so he remembered his covenant. He hears your prayers. But here's the second and the final thing for us to take away today. If God does not act to save, there will be no salvation. Moses is a second-rate deliverer. First of all, he himself needed deliverance as a baby from Pharaoh. Pharaoh tries to kill him as an infant and later as a young adult. Moses runs from his enemy. He can do nothing about Pharaoh. Left to himself, Moses' plan of deliverance were perhaps well-intentioned, but pretty pathetic. What was his plan? To kill an Egyptian god every day for hundreds of days and bury them in shallow graves. I don't know. What was his plan? It wasn't very effective at all. He tried, he failed. If you want deliverance on a grand scale, on a creation or a flood scale, you need God to do it. And do you know, friends, that God has done it? He has acted in history to save us. He has provided a rescue event in the history of the world that is so big, so immense, that it surpasses a worldwide flood. It was the death of Jesus. An event so cosmic that even the sun was blocked out for three hours on that day. The sun was switched off on the day of the cross. Why? For God has seen and God struck Jesus, and therefore God has saved. 
When we look at Jesus on the cross, we are meant to see something much bigger than the flood, much bigger than the exodus. It is an immense rescue event that means that life can never be the same, for God has intervened in the world in a cosmic way. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God sees and he knows your situation. No one else may. You might be feeling completely and utterly alone, but you can be sure that you are seen and that you are loved and that you are known because of the cross. For on the cross, God struck his only son, so that you can become his son and daughter. You've never been loved by anybody like that. Do you realize how enormous a thing your salvation is? It's on a cosmic scale. We are easily blasé if we are in Bible teaching churches for any period of time. We are easily blasé about what God has done for us in Jesus. We hear the message that our sins are removed that our deliverance is sure, and we've heard it so often that it washes over us, but today, can you see the immensity of the cross? And can I speak to you this morning, if you are not yet a Christian, do you realize that you need to be saved? You need to be saved not so much from your circumstances, you need to be saved from God. For God is rightly angry with a world that has turned his back on him. You need to be saved. You are helpless to save yourself. You can't go to church and think that you're saved. You can't be a good person and think that you're saved. You can't give money and think that you are saved. You need to go to the cross and beg and pray and groan for salvation. That's the starting point. I'll be happy to groan with you after the service if you wanted me to help you with that. Come and talk to me. Nothing would give me greater joy. We'll start with our newcomer's tea in about 15 minutes after the end of the service. And I'll have time to speak to you if you'd like to speak to me in that time. Now will you bow with me as we pray.